Hey there, everybody in Serial Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Every week we discuss something new and interesting in the serial killer world, and then we discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then, because most serial killer fans love to get a little spooked, Brian will lead us down the road of the paranormal or just something that he found to be particularly creepy this week. So, in the name of love, this February, I'll be speaking only about couples this month. And my first uh, couple are the notorious Ken and Barbie killers from Canada, Carla Homoka and Paul Bernardo. And our topical situation this week is that New York City just discovered a new serial killer. Yay, new serial killers. Not really new or more so. They found someone they were looking for. And it's pretty ridiculous because he lived in the same building as his victims and it's been going on for a couple of years now it's crazy all right oh it, wait first off um let me I don't just even... yeah <laughs> and uh, if anyone notices that there's anything different this week it's because we are both snowed in in central pennsylvania so we're recording this remotely and hoping that it comes out all right hopefully <laughs> uh, but and as far as uh, what brian talks about you know he likes to keep that from us until it's time to spring on the spook yes so you're not getting that until the spook time but this guy his name was uh was it kevin yeah kevin gavin kevin gavin all right and he killed three to four different elderly women Right, so there are three that they know of already, but they're looking into a fourth victim as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he killed. Oh, and he's elderly too. Yeah. He's sixty-six so, years old. So this his his whole building was an elderly community. So. He, okay, that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, so he killed them all in his own building. Do we have explanations for the why yet? Um. Not at this moment, no. I think it's still an ongoing uh, investigation, but... Well, from what I read, it started in 2015, and the most recent one happened uh, Friday. That would be January 29th, right? Yes. 29th? Yes. Right. (laughs) And the victims are all between 78 and 83, so that's pretty intense. I did read that the one woman who they're not sure whether it was murder or not well okay so the coroner said it was a heart attack well correction the police said it was a heart attack the coroner said she had broken ribs and had been hit in the chest so her daughter is like yeah that's definitely murder but nobody else really listened to the kid so that's why she thinks he's part of the so that might be the fourth one they're looking into then yeah that's the one they're looking into because i feel like how does an old lady get you know a broken chest wall i mean yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, well, they're old, but, you know, still. No, I understand. People, they do have brittle bones as you get older, osteoporosis and things of that nature. But mm. and an interesting thing that I saw from people who were upset about this is that people had been asking for cameras at the facility for a really long time. And they believe that they would have been able to catch him a lot sooner had they had some level of security at the building. Well, 
Yeah, it says that they're adding 65 more cameras to the building, so maybe they had cameras already, but they didn't have enough? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess they only had four. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing probably just on, like, the front door, the back door, that sort of thing. But they need cameras in on every floor. I mean, I know in my apartment building, there are cameras at every elevator. Yeah. And the all the entrances as well okay. so that way at least they can have a visual of seeing where someone came into the building and what floor they got off on right yeah that makes sense so apparently mr gavin was supposed to be like some type of handyman around the building as well which is which explains why he would have access this is true um so his first victim was the one in 2015 said that he's mm-hmm. he stabbed her in the neck with a steak Oof. knife? That's, I guess, using what you have around you. Yeah. That's like, awful. I think I think every, all of his murders were using stuff that he found in the apartment or their, their houses. And you told me when we were first just discussing bringing this up this week that these had to do with some sort of scam or money okay, or something. Okay, so, no. Um, he's actually, aside from being a murderer... He is also a scam artist. Okay. So did that you think maybe they found out about the scams and he took them out, maybe? No. I mean No, not at all. No. no I think so that was the, just the scams his... have nothing to do with the murder then. Exactly. Oh. I listen, it comes up all the time. Think of all of the different murders I've discussed so far. So many of them have ties to like I know, fraud. Right? It's, it's crazy. I don't <laughs> I don't know what this connection is, but it's a weird one. But either way, this is an ongoing investigation. Uh and it fits the definition of a serial killer, that's for sure. Absolutely. I mean I mean he does have that the age the the year gap, so he has one in two thousand fifteen. Uh, well, he has one in 2019 as well, then another one, I guess, 2020. So he still has that. Yeah, at least a year, at least a month cooling off in between every killing. Though I suppose technically it counts at a different place since it was in a different apartment each time. But that's cutting that rule kind of close. I think <laughs> there's a gray area somewhere. Yeah, there always is. But what a weird thing. And that's not even counting the fact that, I mean, there's an unsolved serial murder situation going on on Long Island in New York. Oh, what? I didn't know about that. You know about that? Yeah, they were looking for a missing woman and they found a mass grave a couple years ago. And they have now reopened those cases and they're trying to figure out like who killed all these women on Long Island. So they're still trying to figure out, I guess it's kind of a cold case situation now because and at one point they got a phone call that named one of the women that was in the mass grave. So who knows now? Yeah, they were buried at a beach in Long Island. So that's an ongoing thing. New York's got a lot going on for it. uh, Going on in it. Yeah. (laughs) Lovely. I guess you got a town of 8 million people. A lot of stuff pops off. But in regards, like I said, all this month, I will only be discussing couples and not just people who kill together couples, but in actual romantic partnerships. 
And I actually need to give a little bit of a trigger warning before I jump into this. Uh, the content today is going to contain discussion of sexual assaults against children. And I perfectly understand if that crosses the line for you and you don't want to listen. I will attempt to discuss it without going into any graphic detail, but I do think it's just responsible to give everybody a heads up. Underneath the info section on this podcast, we will give you the timestamps so you can skip over any uh, discussion of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka if this is just one of your limits. Right, 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 right. So for anybody who doesn't know, or this is the first time you've ever heard of them, the Ken and Barbie killers were a couple from Canada who assaulted and killed at least three different minors between 1990 and 1992. They were described this way in the newspapers because they were two platinum blonde, standardly attractive people. And the world was really confused as to why they would do crimes like this. Uh, On his own, Paul Bernardo was also known as the Scarborough Rapist. And together, their crimes were known as the schoolgirl killings because all of them were teenage high school girls. Oh, my God. So he has three different names. Uh, He does have multiple names. Uh, But before I discuss this monstrous couple that they were together, I kind of want to dive into who they were before they were serial killers. So Paul Bernardo was born August 27th, 1964 in Toronto, Ontario. He was born into a very wealthy and very dysfunctional family. His mother had been adopted by a wealthy Toronto attorney and given a relatively good life. Her name was Marilyn. His father, Kenneth Bernardo, was born to an English and Italian immigrant who created a successful marble and tile business. But his father was horribly abusive. And then Kenneth Bernardo left that family business and became an accountant. So like his own father, Kenneth Bernardo would then abuse his wife. Uh, Marilyn struggled with depression from that abuse and she would begin having an extramarital affair with an old boyfriend. It would be a, it would appear that Kenneth tolerated his wife's affair and we can't entirely be sure of Paul Bernardo's parentage, but Kenneth is listed as the father on the birth certificate. (laughs) Marilyn would have two children and then begin to withdraw from the relationship, actually sleeping in the basement away from her family. Wow. Damn. Yeah. So you ever hear the statement that apple doesn't fall far from the tree? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Kenneth Bernardo would get charged with child molestation in 1975 for touching a local child inappropriately. And his own daughter admitted that he had assaulted her in her childhood as well. This is more than likely the reason Kenneth didn't mind his wife being with somebody else. Right. Because he had other things to preoccupy him. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Despite the tumultuous childhood, Paul initially seemed unscathed by it. Uh, In the book called Lethal Marriage by Nick Prawn, it said that Paul was a really happy child. He was a young boy who smiled a lot. They said he was very cute. He had little dimples and that, you know, everybody who saw him just wanted to pinch them. He was the perfect child, always polite, well-mannered, did well in school. He was a Boy Scout. That was until he was about 16. Paul's parents had a really terrible fight and Marilyn tells Paul, Kenneth isn't your real dad. Oh, <laughs> oh, dropping a yeah. bomb on him like that. Oh my God, no. From that point on, Paul is repulsed by his mother and refers to her as a slob and a whore. Oof. Yeah, so that relationship there is completely dead. He graduates from Sir Wilfrid Laurier Collegiate Institute And he goes to work for Amway, which has a very tough sales culture. And it's believed that that really had a large effect on him and his 
um, you know, early adult years. He bought every book and tape that he could get his hands on from those, you know, rich and famous experts and also those guys that teach you like how to get girls. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. You remember those being very popular in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> those lovely so, how to get a girlfriend book or how to get pick up, you know, pick up artist stuff. Yes. Oh this my is God. what he was indulging in these kinds of books, how to make money and get hot girls, things of that nature. <laughs> I know, I know. It's funny, <laughs> but it's not funny because he used these techniques in a really bad way. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, that's it's it's terrible. Apparently, Paul and his friends from Amway would practice these techniques on young women they met in bars, and they were actually really successful. Are you serious? By the time, mm-hmm, by the time he attended the University of Toronto in Scarborough. Paul had developed these very dark sexual fantasies and he was getting off on humiliating women in public. And he, at this point he had physically abused every woman he had dated. So when he meets Carla Homolka in October of 1987, the two of them are immediately sexually attracted to each other. And unlike every other woman he dated, Carla actually encouraged the sexual sadism on the women around him. Wow. Wow. Sweet. Uh Now, speaking of Carla, (laughs) her early childhood wasn't as dramatic as Paul's. She was born uh, Carla Leanne Homolka and uh, to Dorothy and Carol Homolka, May 4th, 1970, in Port Credit, Ontario. She was the eldest of two siblings, or actually, I guess, three siblings. Her other two siblings were named Logan and Tammy. Uh, Her father was a Czechoslovakian immigrant and traveling salesman with a serious drinking problem. And he was indeed abusive to both his wife and his children. Uh, The sisters originally kind of banded together through that, but I'm not entirely so sure how close they were because of something that goes on later. And I'll, I'll explain it when we get to it. Okay. But regardless of that, uh, she had a pretty normal childhood when she was young. She liked to draw. She was considered to be bright and very popular. She loved animals and she would go into working with animals as her career. So the two of them meet at a Scarborough restaurant, October 17th, 1987. And they were both attending a convention in Toronto. She was 17 years old. And he was 23. The age of majority in Ontario is 18, very similar to the United States. And the age of consent was 14. Now, they met in October. He proposed to her December 24th of the same year. Mm. And just in heads up, just in case you're still listening, I would say this is the part of the podcast where things are going to get a little sad and definitely very gross. Until Paul and Carla break up, it's pretty much like this for the rest of their relationship. Okay. I would, uh, yeah. Let's, let's give you a heads up. Let's 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 get into it. <laughs> I'm not ready, right. but so you know, <laughs> you know how some people get together and it just makes them better. Yeah. I would say that Paul and Carla made each other worse. Carla encouraged Paul's sadism and Paul was just enthralled with how much the stuff seemed to kind of turn him on or turn her on. So the two of them very much fed off of each other in this way. So they both fed each other's toxic tendencies, basically. Mm. Exactly. Now, from 1987 to 1990, they're just a regular couple and they're dating. You know, he's working in the finance field and sales field and she's working as a... Uh, she's working in a pet, like a vet clinic. 
during that time, Paul sexually assaulted 11 women and attempted to assault several others. Most of them he met stalking them when they got off of public transportation late at night. I'm sure to the Scarborough residents, it would seem like their police weren't doing a whole lot. But there were a couple of times that Paul actually almost got caught. Uh, after the third attack, uh, the local police issued a public warning to all women traveling at night, especially those on buses. And then in May of 1988, he was hiding under a tree near a bus shelter and a local cop who was set to patrol the area saw him and chased him. But Paul was able to evade capture. Then on October 88th, 88th, October <laughs> of 1988, <laughs> uh, one of his victims started screaming and he got chased by some of the neighbors because what he would do is he would see the girl at the bus stop and he would follow her to her home. And most of the assaults happen either in the girl's front yard or backyard of their own homes. Oh, wow. Oh, uh, what? Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry. That hit me. That hit, took me a second to that, that hit me. But oh, my God. And they would last from anywhere from like 30 to 60 minutes. Ugh. So extra traumatic. It happens at your own house. I can't imagine feeling safe in your neighborhood after that. Right. And you're like so, so close to being like safe, like being into your own house. But and then someone grabs you right before you get home. Yeah. It's oh, my God. Yeah. Ugh. It's every woman's nightmare that hurts and the thing heart. is they they normally tell you you know oh stranger danger isn't a big thing but in this case it definitely was he was not attacking women he knew in real life he was getting off on the fact that he was making these people feel unsafe right just picking up random people just uh just mm-hmm. causing their lives terror uh, all right sorry it's okay Uh, Between May and September of 1990, the police had submitted roughly 130 different suspect samples for DNA testing, and they would receive two reports that the person they were actually looking for was Paul Bernardo. The first one in June was called in by a bank employee, and I don't have a lot of details about this. I just wonder what he was doing at the bank that made somebody go, hmm, they did have a composite sketch from some of the victims, so I wonder if the bank teller just called it in based on the fact that he looked like the composite. Oh, maybe. Um, now, the second one is really interesting. So the second call was from a woman named Tina Smyrnas, and she is the wife of one of Paul's close friends. Uh, now, Tina tells the detectives that Bernardo had actually been called in on a previous rape investigation one in December of 1987, but he had never been interviewed. And she told him that he previ- like he constantly bragged about his sex life to her husband and how much he liked analingus, rough sex, and anal sex. Things I never thought I'd say on the podcast, mm. but here we go. Well, you said them correctly and very scientifically, so hopefully nobody gets... Uh, Too upset? Yeah. Now... Because with Tina making this phone call, they bring in Alex Smyrnas. And this dude is super awkward. Like during the interview, his phrasing is weird, his it's, it's stilted, and it actually left the detectives kind of unsure if they could take him seriously. But after cross-checking several different files, the detectives decide to bring in Paul Bernardo anyway. They interview him on November 20th, 1990, and it lasts about 35 minutes. And Bernardo actually voluntarily gives them samples for forensic testing. Now, 
when the detectives ask Bernardo, why do you think you're being investigated for these rapes? He goes, yeah, well, I guess I do look like the, you know, composites. And the detectives, after that 35 minute interview, conclude that he is just too well-educated, well-adjusted and congenial of a young man. He couldn't possibly be responsible for such vicious crimes. What? And, and this is a direct quote. He was far more credible than Alex Smyrnas, who, with his awkward, strange way of speaking, might be trying to collect the reward. Oh, my God. What? What? No. It's all. Listen, it always happens, isn't it? The police always have the guy and then they let him go. I know. But he had, wait, another person tell him that, yeah, this is the guy you're looking for is a bank teller, right? Mm hmm. And, And you just are just like no 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 you guys aren't right no 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 look at this guy this guy no right so well they brought in i guess they brought in the wrong smyrnas because tina was the one who was like yeah that dude's a creep but they bring in her husband instead and her husband's like i don't know like maybe i don't want to tell on my friend what you know what i mean so he's just weird and awkward and so the police just assume that the smyrnases are trying to collect the reward for information about the rapist so they think that they're just lying why would you bring in their the husband though when the wife is the one who told you about this i don't know oh my god Mm. we'll get into the the inquiry that happens about this okay okay at the end but uh paul is released the next day uh well he's released and then the next day he takes a trip with Carla and he promises her that he is not the Scarborough rapist. So we move into the next chapter of their lives, which I would say, which are then when they begin victimizing people together. Uh, in 1990, Bernardo is spending a large amount of time with the Homolka family uh, and they like him very much. He's engaged to the oldest daughter, but he flirts constantly with the youngest one who's 15. Uh, He has not told anyone in the family that he lost his job as an accountant and instead has been smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canadian border to make money. I mean, well, at least you're making some type of money, I guess. Just, you know, violating a whole lot of laws. Just just illegally. So, you you know, you you know, throughout that whole time, you could have got a legit job. But, you know, it's whatever, I guess. Mm hmm. Exactly. So, but during this time that he's living with the Homolka family, the two of them are living together and they're engaged, you know, he's kind of obsessed with Tammy Homolka to the point where he is looking in her window, entering her room to masturbate while she sleeps. Oh my God. Uh, Carla even helps him peep by breaking the blinds to her sister's window so that Bernardo can see when he walks by. What the fuck? I mean, the heck? Oh, it gets worse. It gets worse. In July of 1990, he takes Tammy across the border to get beer for a party. And then when they come back, Bernardo tells uh, Carla that they got drunk and began making out when they were across the border. And over that summer, he supplies Tammy and her friends with gifts, food and sodas that is a direct quote too had a film and a few white flecks on the top. Oh, my God. So you just have to decide what drug you think that is he was supplying these children with. But mind you, Tammy and her friends are all 15 years old. And this man is now in his, um, he's almost 30. 
So what the? F- uh, Come on, dude. Okay, all right, all right. I'm not liking this. <laughs> I know, I know. Six months before this, uh, Carla had stole an anesthetic agent called Halothane from the clinic that she worked at, and the issue here was that apparently Paul was kind of hung up on the fact that when he met Carla, she wasn't a virgin. And so Carla decided that she was going to give her sister's virginity to Bernardo for a Christmas present. Mm, How kind of her. She's such a sweet, loving girlfriend to do such a lovely, lovely thing. Oh, my God. So on December 23rd, uh, they plied the sister with sleeping pills and uh, alcohol. And when she was unconscious, uh, Tammy then also administered the halothane on her sister's nose and mouth. So they like triple got her sedated. Mm. And with uh, their parent, like the parents upstairs, they videotaped themselves uh, raping the girl in her basement bedroom. Oh my God. Sometime during the event, Tammy began to vomit um, and aspirated on it. And they tried to revive her, and then they called 911. But not before hiding the evidence. They redressed her and moved her back into her bedroom. And a few hours later, she was pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital, never regaining consciousness. Oh, my God. Now, here's another part where I kind of poke at the, the police here and everyone else in the house. Because they call 911, and, of course, they alert the family to it. And... They also vacuum and wash clothes in the middle of the night. And despite the presence of a chemical burn on Tammy's face, the Niagara Regional Coroner and the Homolka family accept the couple's version of events, which is that it was an accidental death. She choked on her vomit after consuming too much alcohol. Really? Yes. And I'm what Mm. nope no one looks into that one further close case move it on uh here's a fun and uh not fun fact apparently uh carla would make other videos of her wearing her sister's clothes and pretending to be her oh my god they found those videotapes at the end so that's also pretty grotesque good night (laughs) <laughs> Bye. I, I'm sorry. Uh, but after that, they move out of the Hamoka house to a house in Port de Lucie uh, to allow her parents to cope with their grief. Uh, Port, uh, Port de Lucie is a, like a neighborhood in the city of St. Catharines. And almost instantly, as soon as they are permanently moved into St. Catharines, Paul rapes another girl and this time she was 14 and it happened during the daytime. So it was almost like he was trying to do something not typical that he did in Scarborough. Right. Uh. I know. But, this is uh Yeah, I mean he claims to his girlfriend that I'm not the rapist, believe me. Well, uh, I think at this point it doesn't matter. This is true. Because she is 100% in on this. Yeah. Today's episode of When Killers Get Caught is brought to you by The Magic Claps Boutique, which happens to be a company owned by a very own Brittany Ransom. 
If you've seen Britney on her live streams, she's always rocking some awesome earrings that she herself makes. From cute ice cream earrings to spooky mermaid earrings. She even makes self-defense keychains so you can look stylish and protect yourself at the same time. The Magic Class Boutique is going to release some special jewelry for the podcast next month, so keep an eye out for that as well. To learn more, go to www.themagicclasp.com. So the two of them get married, and while working at a pet shop in this new city, Carla meets a 15-year-old girl. Uh, And on June 7th, 1981, Carla invites the girl to her home to hang out. They go shopping, they have dinner, and then she gives her a drink laced with a drug called Halcyon that she's stolen from her job. She then calls Bernardo and tells him, your wedding present is ready. Mm -hmm. They also film themselves assaulting this girl. And when only she doesn't die, she wakes up and she just believes that she's hungover because it's the first time she ever had alcohol. She didn't actually realize that she had been assaulted. This happens several more times. And actually, one night, Carla almost kills her by giving her too much of the drug. And she calls 911. And then she calls them back and is like, okay, never mind. We're good. Oh, my God. And they don't show up at the house. They serious? don't show up at the house. Nope. They do They do not send 911. One night in December, mind you, she met that girl in June. So in December, while they're all sober... Carla tries to pressure the teen to have sex with her husband and the teen girl just gets upset and leaves and stops speaking to Carla from that point on. They don't ever mention her name in any news articles because she was underage when it happened and I believe underage when they got caught. So they protected her identity. Right. Okay. (sighs) So we move into the next victim. Uh, Paul would be driving through Burlington and run across a 14 year old girl named Leslie Mahaffey and she had been locked out of her house after missing her curfew. And uh, he makes a joke about breaking into her neighbor's houses and she asks for a cigarette and he says, sure, I have them in my car. And when they get to the car, he blindfolds her and forces her into the car and uh, drives home to tell his wife they have a new playmate. They again, take turns torturing her and filming it and assaulting her there too and there's even one moment during the video something that they actually showed during the trial where paul says the next two hours are going to determine what i do to you right now you're scoring perfect Mm. Mm, yeah okay (laughs) The, the direct the the quotes just Unfortunately for Leslie, it would escalate when her blindfold slipped and it would seem that that is when they decided to kill her. Uh, Bernardo claimed that uh, Homolka gave her a lethal dose of Halsey on the next day. Homolka claimed that Bernardo strangled the girl. Regardless, uh, they put her body in the basement and then planned for Carla's family to come visit for the day. Oh my God. <laughs> Let's go so, about our normal lives. Yep, her mom, dad, and other two, well, one other sister at this point, because the other one's gone, Mm. uh, visit for the day. Then later on that night, the two of them decided the best way to handle this would be to dismember her and put her pieces in cement. And then Carlin makes multiple trips to Lake Gibson, which is very close to the house. We're talking about like 
less than five kilometers, I believe it said. No. It's very close to their house. Yeah. So not only did she dump it, but she dumped it somewhere absolutely too close. And she wasn't the smartest because the thought process here is, is if you're going to dump like a body with cement, you can't do it on the side of the lake. You probably need to like take a boat out in the middle or something. Yeah. Regardless, two weeks later, a father and son are fishing and see the pieces of cement resting against the shoreline. And uh, they report it and the police take it and they're able to verify Leslie's identity because she had an orthodontic appliance in her mouth, which usually have serial numbers. Right. So within two weeks, they already know that this one girl has been killed. And I have to wonder because maybe they were just scared or maybe having the videos they took somehow sated their weird desires temporarily but it's almost a year before they kill again they go out this time on purpose looking to abduct someone it's april 16th 1992 just before easter they see a 15 year old girl she's uh, leaving catholic school most of the actually i think it was a thursday before good friday so it's like the last day of school before the long weekend and they pull ahead of her into a parking lot and Paul hides and Carla looks at a map and she's, you know, pretending to be very confused. And when the 15 year old girl, Kristen French tries to help Carla, Paul ambushes her and they throw her into the car over the next three days. They tape themselves assaulting Kristen, but unbeknownst to Carla and Paul, Kristen's parents knew right away that something was wrong. They knew that her route home from school was only 15 minutes. She was not the type of girl to just walk off and go somewhere without letting them know. Mm -hmm. And so they did not wait long at all before calling the police. And And unbeknownst to Paul and Carla, they had left witnesses to the abduction. On top of that, her shoe was left at the site where she was grabbed. So within 24 hours, they have a very good picture. The police have a good picture of what happened here, that it was very serious, and they mobilize a task force to begin looking for her. Awesome. Awesome. Right. This is when police are actually doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, So it's April 18th, and Paul is out buying pizza, and one of Paul's previous victims, named Carrie Patrick, saw him and reports him to the police. They had previously botched her case but it put Paul on alert because I think the two of them saw each other and they would decide to kill Kristen the following morning before going to Easter dinner at Carla's family's house. Oh, my God. I know. It's so nice. <sighs> uh, police uh, would find uh, Kristen's body in a ditch on April 30th, 1992 in Burlington, which is about 45 minutes from St. Catherine's. And strangely close to the cemetery where Leslie Mahaffey was buried. And I don't think that was accidental. Mm. Her hair had been cut off and her body had been washed as a forensic countermeasure. There are many other situations where Carla encouraged Paul as the Scarborough rapist. Originally, it seemed like she didn't know, but in my opinion, I don't know that there wasn't a way that she knew. Like, when they were going through the house, and I'll explain, it was incredible, the process the police took to go through the house. But they found clippings of a sexual assault that happened in Hawaii 
when Paul and Carla were on their honeymoon. Like he kept all of the news clippings and it fit his general MO. So he raped someone right after they got married. Oh my God. Just how atrocious. So, Uh, so lovely. The police ultimately only confirmed 13 sexual assaults and at least six attempts, but I think that there were a lot more. Now, we kind of get into sort of the aftermath of the situation with the two teen girls. Uh, At this point, Homoka and Bernardo have been questioned by the police several different times, first in connection with the Scarborough rapist investigation, then with Tammy Homoka's death, with Bernardo stalking three different women, and that's all before the death of Kristen French. And every time they brought Paul in, previous cops just thought he was such an unlikely suspect. He's just so well, well spoken. Well, that all changes May 12th, 1992. A sergeant and a constable interview Paul again. And then three days later, a, the Green Ribbon Task Force is created to investigate the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Paul and Carla must have sensed the walls were kind of closing in on them because they applied to have their names changed legally from Bernardo and Homolka to Teal, which (laughs) Paul Bernardo got from the movie, uh, from a movie from in 1988 where the villain was a serial killer. So it wasn't even that clever, but regardless. (laughs) Wait, wait, did you, did did you get the movie of what it was? It was, uh, it was called criminal something. Ah. I didn't write it down all the way. I apparently missed one of the words. Give me a second. I'll find it. I'm sorry. No, no, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> it was called Criminal Law. Oh, yeah. Never seen it. Okay. <laughs> no, it, it's, uh, it was filmed in Quebec, so it's, a Fran- it's probably in French. Uh, uh, okay. But it's a movie called uh, Criminal Law, and it's about this uh, attorney who defends a wealthy man. I guess, I don't know, actually the wealthy man is Kevin Bacon. Maybe we would have seen this. Wait, yeah, Kevin Bacon. In it's it. a oh. Kevin Bacon movie. Of course yeah. I would have seen it. Oh my goodness, I did not see it. <laughs> but either way, he gets that name from the villain who is played by Kevin Bacon. Uh, at the end of May in 1992, uh, a man by the name of John Modal, an acquaintance of Paul Bernardo, also reports Bernardo as a possible murder suspect. Oh my god. They're coming for you, buddy. So, they're coming in early December 1992. The Center of Forensic Science finally begins testing DNA samples provided by Paul Bernardo three years earlier. Mm. I can only mm-hmm. I can only assume that Paul was starting to feel the stress here. He's being interviewed repeatedly, and he makes I would say a pretty big mistake uh, because on December 27, 1992. He would beat his wife, uh, Carla Homoka, with a flashlight, hitting her on the arms, legs, head, and face. Initially, she claimed she was in a car accident and went back to work on January 4th. But Carla's co-workers are skeptical, and someone actually called her parents, and her parents show up at her house on January 5th and physically remove her from home. They take her to the local hospital, St. Catherine's General Hospital. Her injuries are documented, and she gives a statement to the police claiming she is a battered spouse and files charges against Bernardo. There you go. He's He's arrested and later released on his own recognizance. And Homolka moves in with her aunt and uncle in Brampton. I can only say the next section I would call the net begins to close in. 26 months after the samples have been submitted, Toronto police are informed 
that Paul Bernardo's DNA matches that of the Scarborough racist, and they immediately place him on a 24-hour surveillance. Nice. The the Metro Toronto Sexual Assault Squad investigates, uh, they interview Homolka, and that happens February 9th, 1993. Despite telling them, like, despite, like, uh, despite telling her their suspicions about Bernardo, Homoka only concentrates on the fact that he abused her. Then later that night after the interview, she tells her aunt and uncle that her husband is the Scarborough rapist and that she was also involved in the rapes and murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French and that they recorded them. Hmm. The police simultaneously decide to reopen the investigation into Tammy Homoka's death. On February 11th, 1993, uh, Carla meets with the a Niagara Falls lawyer named George Walker, seeking full immunity <laughs> from, uh, yes, in exchange for cooperation. And she gets placed under 24-hour surveillance, too. On February 14th, George Walker meets with Murray Segal, who's the director of what's called Crown Criminal Law Office in Canada. He tells, Walker tells essentially the equivalent of, like, for America, our DA, uh, about the rapes and the videotapes, and Seagal says there is absolutely no way we can offer this girl full immunity. That's outrageous. Yeah, like I mean, I don't blame him. Like she was involved in all of these. Absolutely. So the Metro Sexual Assault Squad and the Green Ribbon Task Force arrest Bernardo on numerous charges on February seventeenth, nineteen thirty-three, and they obtain a search warrant. Now, because Bernardo's links to the murders are very weak, the warrant contained limitations. So no evidence that was not explicitly listed in the warrant on the warrant could be removed from the property. And any videotape the police found had to be viewed in the house. Damage to the house would be kept to a minimum. The police were not allowed to tear down the walls to look for the tapes. The search of the house, including updated warrants, Lasted 71 days. Oh, my God. And the only tape they find is a very small segment of Carla Homolka performing oral sex on the young girl that she took out that one night. Mm-hmm. The Jane Doe that they were, they didn't mention in the papers. So on May 5th, 1993, uh, her lawyer is informed that the governor is going to offer the government is going to offer her a 12-year sentence plea bargain, and she has one week to accept it. If declined, they would charge her with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder along with other crimes. Her attorney, with the wisdom that only you get from an attorney, he accepts on the spot. And then Homoka later agrees to it. Smart, smart. Because he recognized this was the best deal she was going to get <laughs> yep. ever. You're going to get no better. So on May 14th, the plea agreement is signed and she begins giving her statements to the investigators about Paul. This plea bargain has been really criticized by many Canadians uh, because Paul Bernardo's first defense lawyer, whose name was Ken Murray, withheld the videotapes for 17 months. Apparently, when Paul knew they were coming for him, he removed them from the house and gave them to his lawyer. Really? Yes, these were considered crucial evidence, and prosecutors say that they would have never agreed to a plea bargain if they had been able to see those tapes in the beginning. 
Um, in fact, Murray was later charged with obstructing justice and faced a disciplinary hearing with the Law Society of Upper Canada. Like, he almost lost his ability to be an attorney I mean, yeah, because of this. Yeah, like, why would you even Why would you even think that was an okay thing to do? Mm, he was defending his, uh, his uh, yeah, but little jerk off. No, but even <laughs> as a regular, like a lawyer, you cannot do that. You're not supposed to. Uh, and, yeah, Carla testifies against him to get that 12-year sentence. Paul is given a life sentence with possibility of parole after 25 years. But the, a year later, he was deemed a dangerous offender, which is apparently a very serious title given to certain criminals in Canada. He is still in jail. And despite being kept in isolation in every prison that he's ever been in, he has not had the best time. And anytime he's been around other inmates, he gets attacked. I can see why. So not I, me too. I'm not entirely surprised. Uh, now, in 2006, Bernardo would admit to 10 additional sexual assaults that happened in 1986 before he even met Carla Hamoka. So that time period where he was out there humiliating women and, you know, using his pickup artist techniques, he was also raping women, too. Mm. Interestingly enough, the gall, he was eligible for parole, I believe, in the early 2000 aughts. And he applied for parole in both 2015 and 2018 and was denied. Uh, when, <laughs> yeah, his lawyers don't think he'll ever actually get out of prison because of that dangerous offender title that's been added to his name. Good. I hope he doesn't. And an interesting fact is when he was given the psychopathy checklist, the same one that they gave to Eileen Wernos in the States, he scored a 35 out of 40. Getting a 30 would deem you a psychopath. So he almost uh, answered all of the questions like someone who is a psychopath would. Oh, my God. So, yeah, no, no, that's okay. You can stay where you're at. Uh, as for Carla's family, uh, after learning that their eldest daughter was the reason why their youngest daughter died, it would believe it's uh, Carla's mother would have to be hospitalized roughly every year around between Thanksgiving and Christmas time, which is the time period that her daughter was murdered. Uh, her family has not done well with this. Oh. As for Carla, before she did her 12 years, they evaluated her extensively by professionals and they've come up with more questions than answers. One of her therapists said, uh, she remains something of a diagnostic mystery. Despite her ability to present herself very well, there is a moral vacuity in her, which is difficult, if not impossible to explain, which to me sounds like Carla Homolka is a bit of a sociopath. Hmm. Um, apparently trying to dig into this really highlighted the complexities and challenges of behavioral studies on women suspected of psychopathic traits because so many of those traits are related to masculinity and maleness. Um, the various different masks that the female psycho, the female psychopathic killer displays have to do more with the audience and the manipulation happening at that moment that will benefit the psychopath than the true nature of the person. So they never really get a full scope of who she is. Essentially, depending on who Carla is talking to, she is a completely different person. Um, not in a sense that she has multiple personalities, but that she sort of bends her her will and her morality based on who she's talking to. Right. Okay. So she, she which makes her hard to diagnose. I I kind of want to say she's kind of like code switching a little bit. Ah. 
<laughs> not quite, but a, a little bit. I think that's a really interesting thing just to think about. Somebody who you don't really ever know where you stand with that person. Right, yeah. Uh, a man by the name of Dr. Graham Clancy, he's a forensic psychiatrist who was hired by Paul Bernardo's defense lawyer, offered an alternative theory, which I think you'll find very interesting, Brian. Okay. Um, it's listed in his book called Invisible Darkness, which is about this case. And he says, direct quote, she appears to be a classic example of hybristophilia, an individual sexually aroused by a partner's violent tendencies. Come on. <laughs> it's funny how these things keep it's just lining around up. for us. It's just lining up. It is. Oh, my God. Like, mm-hmm. so serendipitous. So uh, a different psychiatrist thinks that Carla was aroused and turned on by the fact that her husband was a murderer and a rapist. And it seems like she was. I definitely don't buy that she was a battered woman who was forced to do this. No, no. She definitely helped him. She wanted to see that stuff happen. Mm hmm. So she was released and she relocated to Montreal. And 2006, she tried to change her name, and they declined that. In 2007, she had a baby and moved to NTS in the Caribbean so her child could have a normal life, and she had two other kids, and she got married. She moved back to Canada and ended up in Quebec in 2016, where any attempts to talk to her about that time in her life are met with just straight anger. She will not talk to lawyers. She is not having it. Um Parents of the chil- uh, parents with children who are attending the same school as her kids actually tried to stop her from being able to even go to the school or attend even PTA meetings. But the school board ultimately supported Carla. I mean. As of January 2020, she lives in Salaberry de Valleyfield alone without her children or her husband. And interestingly enough, when Canadians were polled, 63% of them believe that they have the right to know where Carla Homolka is living. <laughs> 18% say she should get some kind of anonymity. And 18% pretty much said, eh, maybe offer her some anonymity in about 50 years. I mean, that's... that's. <laughs> Which I... Sorry, go ahead. I just thought it was funny. I mean, I mean, that's kind of... She's kind of like a predator, though. Right? I wouldn't trust her around any children. Exactly. Especially not teenagers. So what you, what do you do with predators? You get to know where the hell they live. So I agree with people who are thinking that they should know where she lives so they can stay away from <laughs> where she's at. So you would be part of the 63%. Damn right. Now, the last thing I'm going to discuss is just what happened to the cops. So after Bernardo's 1995 conviction, the Ontario lieutenant governor appointed a man by the name of Archie Campbell to review the roles played by the police during the investigation a year later he released a report and he said that the lack of coordination cooperation and communications by police and other elements of the judicial system contributed to a serial predator falling through the cracks and this is actually i guess a really positive thing that came from this horrible horrible situation because he recommended they an, an automated case an automated case management system for the Ontario police services to use in investigations like these with homicide and sexual assaults. So Ontario happens to be the only place in the world with this type of computerized case management system. And it's called power case. And since 2002, all municipal police services in the Ontario provincial police have access to it, which allows them to access anything from any case that has happened in Ontario. Wow. 
it's the kind of thing that we are trying to do in America and failing miserably at it. <laughs> one day, one day. Maybe one day we can learn from our neighbors to the north, you know, because that would be a really useful tool to essentially link up all uh, United States police. Right. Yeah. But as of right now, only uh, Ontario has it. Um, that is where I leave you with my story. Oh, well. I know. You, it's, it was a horrible, horrible story, but you told it so great. Oh, you're very nice. <laughs> uh, this was really this was really hard for me. This was hard for me to research. This was hard for me to write. I pushed it off as long as possible. I didn't even finish it until halfway through today. Ah, children being harmed just hits me so deep. I work with kids. I've worked with kids for most of my life. I can't imagine doing the kinds of things or harming kids in this way. Yeah, I, I feel you 100% there because I do have children. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's just, it's it's scary like to think about that kind of stuff. Like, and anytime you do anything, I, I think about the fact that uh, all of the children who I work with, their parents have to put their trust in a bunch of strangers exactly uh, watching their children all the time exactly in this case these i mean this case he was attacking teenagers and and young adults when they were just walking home but i mean teachers have background checks too though so we do we do but unfortunately that doesn't stop people who've never harmed before you can only the background check only exposes people who've gotten in trouble Mm. so it's it's still it's an unsteady connection for both of us we're worried about the parents and the parents are worried about us and everybody's trying their best to make sure we do right by the kids right everybody's trying to trust each other but we're like "Eh, i got my (laughs) eye on you buddy oh yeah because part of my job is also monitoring the children and making sure nothing bad is happening to them at their homes right so it's it's vice versa they're keeping an eye on us and we're keeping an eye on you so Hopefully the checks and balances make sure that nobody ever falls through the cacks and kids don't get hurt. Right. Yeah, that's true. But maybe you can turn the tide and make the rest of this podcast a little less sad, Brian. Oh, I'm hoping this story helps everybody get through what they just listened to. <laughs> because I'm, I think it'll help a little bit. It'll give you all right. all right all right i'm here for it okay so this story is a branch off of my story last week uh, about the mothman Ooh. so can you guess what this story is about is this gonna be about the cool sheep thing the sheep squatch yeah <laughs> no sheep squatch today oh um what were the other ones we talked about we talked about a sheep squatch we talked about okay we talked about the sheep squatch the grafton monster the flatwoods monster um (gasps) oh yeah the big thing that looks like a giant sludge monster yeah not this that's not we're not talking about this (laughs) no 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 we're not talking about those those are cool though i know are we talking about more stuff from west virginia sort of yes okay okay get a little closer I don't know a lot about cryptids, though. That's really your area of expertise. Okay. So, um, what if I sing a song to you? Oh, you're going to sing to me? Uh, yeah. Just give, you just fill in the blanks um, and um, what you think is that the 
So this is like a little game show, okay? Okay. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Here come the... You said here come, and here I hear come here comes the, the bride. Here come the... Keep going. Galaxy the Benders. Oh, um... Here come the... Men in Black! Yeah, there we go! <laughs> <laughs> it took me a moment there. I had to dig back to like 1994 or 5. 1997. Was it 97? I thought it was way earlier than I thought it was little when I came out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, this is horrible. Men in Black are scary. Uh, It's better than what you were talking about. Um, Give me one sec, actually. Hold on a sec. That's right. I'm talking about the men in black. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And no, I'm not talking about the the hit movie from 1997 starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. I'm talking about movie though. It's a fantastic movie. I love that movie so much. <laughs> um, I'm talking about the real men in black, even though that song is still really good. <laughs> That's just and and like I said. It. It's been stuck to... in my head. Oh, is this what you were telling me about the other day? Yes. You were like, it's so hard. <laughs> it was so like it was so hard not to sing it because it's been stuck in my head all week. And I was like, I just want to sing it so bad. Oh. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. So this is also not a, like a type of scary story, but it's uh but the men in black are so creepy that, you know, I found it interesting, so I, I had to cover it. Mm-hmm. All right. So the men in black, uh, uh, the men in black, are supposed to be, you know, men in dressed in black suits who claim to be some type of government officials or government agents who try to cover up uh, UFO sightings by harassing or threatening the witnesses, you know, to keep and quiet about what they've seen. Well, you said last week that certain people who said they saw the Mothman also met men in black. This is true. And I will get to that later. <laughs> I'm remembering. I'm remembering. Okay, good. <clears throat> so a little description, a little, a tiny description about the men in black. I mean, there's not really much to go off of. Um, so they're always dressed in a black suit. Um, actually, sometimes they are dressed in like a military uh, wear as well. Mm -hmm. um, they lack human emotion. In the one YouTube video I saw that supposedly had men in black, they were like real big. Like tall? Like taller than everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. They were like walking into a building and I like the other people that were near them were much shorter and I'm just. So, so most like at average, their heights are about like six foot. Okay. So you and taller. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they're always, they're mostly always male, um, but there are some cases of females as well. So women oh. in black. Ooh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. Um, and they have pale skin and exotic facial features. So there are like, I remember there was a case of one that was like um, Asian men in black. So that's a thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before I... I tr go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I just never heard of a, a, a woman in black. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds weird. 
All right. So before I truly get into this, um, I'm just going to say that topics like Men in Black, there it's there is mm, like so little on the web about them so i can look them up so i had to you know do a really deep deep dive into a really great book i'll tell you that later Um, analog yeah so i had to get into like a nice book just to get some information about it um so what i'll be telling you for my segment are basically men in black encounters uh you know accounts from people who have met the men in black so that's uh, hopefully <laughs> that is good enough for you guys and hopefully you guys enjoy it um there's also some theories uh, about who the men in black are mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll be getting to that later as well so without further ado let's get into our first story and it's a lot <laughs> Ooh, pages cooking. yes Okay, so let's start our stories off with, this is basically like the first reported or recorded um, information about the men in black. Okay. Okay, so, well, this is actually like the first person who may have seen a man in, a man in black, or men in black. Um, How far does this go back? So this goes back to the 1940s. But I do believe... Um, that they have been around much longer. So, okay. So, so let's talk about a man named Albert Bender. Okay. It's, it's the 1940s. This guy was into strange or paranormal stuff. Like he'd probably fit in <laughs> with this time period. Like he was into. Um, I thought you were gonna say he fits in with us. He, he does. <laughs> um. So, like he he would look out into the sky with his telescope um trying to like catch a glimpse of a flying saucer so his obsession began with the disappearance of flight 19 okay. now, do you know what flight 19 is no i don't think i've heard of it okay flight 19 so so goodness what year is it okay it's 19 uh 1945 december 5th 1945 five avenger class bombers um, they were leaving, I think it was, uh, Florida and they had disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So one of those. Yeah. So this is like the, I guess one of the first case of planes disappearing above, above the uh, Bermuda uh, Triangle. And that's another story altogether. <laughs> uh, yeah. Get, Bermuda uh, Triangle stuff is very. Yeah. That's, uh, it's all. It's all just oh my god! Is it a portal? Is is it a portal somewhere? Do planes just lose? You know, whatever. We'll, we'll get into that some other time. <laughs> okay, so he even like he had an attic um, with his. I guess he lived in his stepdad's house, so he lived in the attic. So this is where he would look out into the sky with his telescope. Um, mm-hmm. So he painted the walls of his room. With faces of creatures, like horrific nightmares creatures. The, no, don't like it. <laughs> so he made it his little his little room of horrors. <laughs> um, so in de- in December of 1950, he starts getting really really into flying saucers, 
He even gets he even got a group of people to create a, a network of UFO investigators. It's called the, the International Flying Saucer Bureau or the IFSB. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the IFSB blew up. So UFO. Oh my God! I'm sorry. I hear writing. <laughs> so UFO disciples from all over the world started sending in reports of sightings to be, you know, to the to the IS, IFSB, and a ton of so people. I to, hmm. So I have to ask you a question. Yeah. Are you a believer, like the uh, IFSB, of the of UFOs? Yes. Absolutely. Do you believe it's like them, like Little Green Man and Flying Saucers? Or do you think it's a little different? I think it's different. I mean, this, it can't, it can't, they can't all be the same. I mean, we're not all the same. Yeah, I think they'd be different too. I'm just really freaked out by the whole concept of the Little Gray Men. Like, if I saw like a little gray person with the big head and the weird arms, I'd probably freak out. Okay, you know what? You're being racist right now to aliens. <laughs> it's just those aliens. I like all the Star Wars aliens. They're all very unique and interesting people. Oh my people. god. What if nobody looks, what if no other alien looks like them? That would be great. I don't know where the gray man idea came from, but it's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. I no. just had to think. I was like, how much do you believe in this no, before I really... we dive into it? Okay, um, where was I at? Oh yeah, so a ton of people wanted to join as well, but okay, IF, IFSB is big news. Yes. So Albert Bender's stay in IS IFSB guy can't even say it. I spelled it out so many times. <laughs> so his stay wouldn't last long, and it's believed that the next um, the next account is the beginning of the end for him oh so yeah so july 30th 1952 bender gets an anonymous call when he picks it up the phone there is no answer but he can tell that there's someone on the other line mm-hmm. he needs like uh-uh. oh those calls are the worst yeah i know right <laughs> you just hear someone like you can just tell someone's there breathing yes or maybe not even breathing you just sense that someone's there don't like it. So I his head it. starts to hurt, and he gets like a dizzy spell. So he heads to bed. After like this is him on the phone. Him being on the phone made his head hurt. So is this like from the movie? They had like the little, uh, what's the word? They had the little thing that messes with your eyes. Only this was his ears. You talking about the neuralizers? Yes, uh, like an ear neuralizer. Mm, not really. Okay. Because good. that makes you forget. This one just wanted to cause him pain. Mm, okay. <clears throat> Alright, so after after this event, days later, he's heading home from the movies. It's late at night, and he has this feeling that something malicious is following him. Oh no. <laughs> he makes he makes it home fine though. So he like nothing happens on his way home. So he's heading to his room in the attic and he notice he notices a weird glow coming from underneath the door. And his room? What? Yeah. <laughs> so, Did, so, please, he didn't go in there, right? He just turned around and walked away, <laughs> hid in the bathroom or something. Uh, no, no, he did not do that. Oh. Okay. 
So he flings the door open and is greeted oh to this God. view. <laughs> so it automatically, like, as soon as he, he steps in, he gets the smell of sulfur. And he sees a bright shimmering object, like, hovering in his room. So let me just note that this man has OCD. He's he's very OCD about things, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to note that right, right real quick. So... Do you mean he actually was OCD or he's yeah, just really yeah, yeah. particular? No. He was, I, okay. I'm guessing he's really particular, but the, the book uh, noted that he may have OCD as well. Okay. Okay. So, let's see, let's see, let's see. Okay, so as as soon as he like opens the door, he sees the object. The object starts hurting his eyes. So, and I, I guess... Some reason this made sense to him in his head. He turns on his room light instead, and the shimmering object just disappears. So I mentioned he was OCD, right? Mm-hmm. So when he was in his room, he noticed that someone had been going through his IFSB files, mm-hmm. and. Like he could, he could just tell that someone was going through them because they were not where he had them last time. Like I said, OCD. So he's like, I know where I had this at. There should, like, there should be nobody going in my room and touching my stuff right now. Gotcha. So, do you think Albert let um, these strange things stop him from living his life? Probably not. No, no. But that would just mean that it would come to bite him in the butt later. Oh. Okay, so he goes to the movies again. So he had a thing for sci-fi. He he loves sci-fi movies. So oh, he's just getting his little double feature on. Yeah, of course. I'm not sure what was out at this time. It's the, what did I say? 1950s. So whatever awesome sci-fi movies were out at that time, he, he probably was out saw there. them all. Yeah, he saw them. You bet he saw them all. Oh, <laughs> uh, so he's sitting chilling, enjoying a movie. When he feels a strange dread and that he's being stared at. So out the corner of his eye, he spots a figure materialize near him. It's a guy dressed in dark clothes. Mm-mm. And an Arthur's... Uh, I keep saying Arthur. Did I say, have I been saying Arthur? Albert. Okay, good. <laughs> his name is Albert. So, okay. so Albert's head, his starts, I, I don't know why I thought, I just thought I said Arthur for like a quick second. You're good. No, no. Okay. You, you, you need to get back on the point that he saw something materialize <laughs> because I didn't think the men in black had magic powers. And so I'm very unsettled right now and I need you to continue where you were. Okay. Okay. So his Albert's head, it starts feeling dizzy again, like the day before, like the, a few days back when his, you know, when he answered the phone. You remember that? Mm-hmm. And he's yes. and he's feeling nauseous, just like right. you know, with the phone call. So he closes his eyes to relieve the stress and the pain, and then when he opens them, the man is gone. And but he sees the man for a second time at the movies. And at like at this point he just freaks out and leaves. He just like, I'm done, I'm getting out of here. I'm going home. No more movies today for me, please. This is I don't like it. Oh, <laughs> So, it's just I thought they were real people. Now they this they can materialize. You don't know. You don't even know. You can't. I'm gonna get into it. So he would continue to see suited men for the next few months, 
and also continue to have dizzy spells as well. So, reportedly, there was a polter there was poltergeist activity, and that sulfur smell came back as well. So throughout these months, he had poltergeist activity, and he could still smell the sulfur. I'm just saying, you said this wasn't gonna be scary, but I'm I'm spooked right now. <laughs> It's not that scary. It's just very educational and very interesting. Um, so, so this guy, he was going through a tough time at this point, and it would only get worse from there. So I, every time I stop at like a section, it only gets worse after that. Um, poor Albert. Yeah. So one day, Albert is visited by not one, not two, but three men in black. So this guy is going through hell already. So he didn't really need to see the, all these motherfuckers, all these guys showing up. Did they just at his show door. up at his house, or they, they sh- like knocked on the door? They showed up at it. Okay, so they knocked. You know, they they knock on the door. They're like vampire rules, basically. Well, not last time. The one time <laughs> they were in his bedroom. Okay, well that wasn't a man in black. That was a shimmering object. I don't know. I don't know either. So maybe this time they just wanted to confront him, you know, men to men. Okay. Yeah. So they tell him all, they tell him the dark truth of the the UFO presence in our world. Now, why would they tell him this? Because they're going to murder him. (laughs) Oh my God, you're so close. (laughs) So they could threaten his life, of course. So... They warn him. Like every good bad guy in a movie. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So they warn him not to tell anyone what he was told under any circumstances unless he, quote, had some... See, see... (laughs) Oh. Why is it so funny to you? I don't know. It's just I'm really giggly right now. I'm sorry. So so he... Tell nobody unless... He had some, quote, sadist um, wish to incur their immediate and deadly wrath, which he oh. certainly did not. So, so then how do we know about what happened here? Obviously, he wasn't that scared. Ah. So, but Bender is scared for his life at this point. So he quits the IFS, uh, IFSB, and... Leaves his members with this meshes. We would like, we would like to print the full story in Space Review, which was a little zine they had for the for their members. Um, but because of the nature of the info, we are sorry that we have been advised in the negatives. So we advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. So. Basically, he's giving out a warning to, you know, all the members that, hey, there are guys out there. They will try to stop you. They will threaten you. They will follow you around. (laughs) Be careful. Right. And this this would be the first of many of the MIB stories. I I like to say MIB, but the Men in Black stories. Um. So there are many encounters like this one, but I have two more that I want to share. They're my favorites. 
Today's episode of When Killers Get Caught is brought to you by The Magic Clasp Boutique, which happens to be a company owned by a very own Brittany Ransom. If you've seen Brittany on her live streams, she's always rocking some awesome earrings that she herself makes. From cute ice cream earrings to spooky mermaid earrings. She even makes self-defense keychains so you can look stylish and protect yourself at the same time. The Magic Class Boutique is going to release some special jewelry for the podcast next month, so keep an eye out for that as well. To learn more, go to www.themagicclasp.com. Okay, so... Uh, so wait. Yes. Do you talk about the Dan Aykroyd situation? No. I should have oh, looked more into that one, but that's a good one, too. It was It was pretty simple. He was doing a TV show for, like, one of the networks, you know, one of those real, true-life, you know, uh, supernatural shows. Right. And he noticed, like, a car, a black car with the people in it. And then, like, a day later, he got a phone call from the network saying, cancel the show. No one's and like no one's gonna cover it, and that's just such an interesting thought process that like somebody somewhere made a phone call and went, "He's on to us." Well, you know he's a ufologist, right? Yeah, he's really into it. So I yeah. assume that like maybe he was onto something where he was recording or whatever they were filming at the time, and they just told him and they shut it down. It's done. There's I mean, no funding. There's no nothing. You're done. Which I mean, is wild because he's a well-respected, well-known actor, so I can't imagine telling him no. I, That's another facet of that story that I find interesting. You're right about that. You're right about that. <laughs> okay, so you remember the Mothman? You know. Ab- yeah, absolutely. From last week? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I told you the MIB, uh, the Men in Black were there to keep things hush-hush as well. Right. Well, this is one of my favorite ones that I read from the book, one of the counters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Turn my page, get to my analog stuff. Okay. So it's Jan, January uh, 1967. So this is a few, this is like a year after you know the first Mothman encounter. Uh, the first public Mothman encounter that went. So is this before everything went, the, the bridge smushed? No. no or afterward? Think- I think this is after the fact. Okay. Or no, actually no, because it said the Mothman was there between 1966 and 1967, so I'm not sure. I don't have the date in my... I have it in my notes, but I just don't know where okay. I have it. So this is still before that, before the, the big catastrophe happened. Okay. I'm just kind of given... I'm trying to get a frame of reference in my head. Right. Okay. So... Mary Heyer, a journalist in Point Pleasant, gets to have two strange encounters with the men in black. Alright, the the first one is... Now, this one is a rarity among men in black. It's a five-foot-tall man, has a bowl cut, and hypnotic eyes. And there wasn't much about this encounter with him, except for... The fact that he was very intrigued by her ballpoint pen. And, you know, before their their interaction ended, um, she, give, she gave her ballpoint pen to him because she saw how interested he was in it. 
and once he got it, he gave out this like cackle like laugh and ran out the door. <laughs> that doesn't sound like she met a man in black. This looks like she met an alien. Something. Who was like, look at this technology. Fun. It's like, ooh, what is this strange object you have here? What is this yeah. for? Yeah. So that's the first encounter. Sounds um, fun. A little madcap. Yeah. Uh, the second encounter. Well, the second weird one. Um, because I guess she had m- multiple encounters. This is just the, the second weirdest one that she had. Okay. Um. So there are two men in black that looked Asian, and they looked like they were twins as well. So they came to the newspaper offices where she worked at. So they started talking about, you know, UFOs and stuff. And one of them was like, a lot of saucer things in the sky, huh? And I was like, yep. And and I imagined the MIB going, ha I gotcha. We know you know about the UFOs. So... <laughs> Oh, goodness. (laughs) So then they begin to ask her things like, has anyone asked you to not publish the details of of the activity? And she said no. And then they're like, okay, well, what if you were warned not to publish the details of this activity? And she goes, and I quote, straight from her lips, straight from the book. It says, I tell them to go to hell. So then she, for a moment, she looks down at her paperwork. And then she looks back up to see that they're gone. So I guess they took her seriously and they went to hell. Hmm. Yeah. That leaves me just more perplexed than anything else. Yeah. It's just like the, all, the, all these encounters are strange. So, if you think the men in black are only men, well, I had to say, that's backwards thinking. How dare you? Get the hell out of here. Um, they're people in black, okay? There are indeed women in black suits encounters as well. And I swear, this one is the best one this is like my the best encounter i've read okay so it's the year 2000 and ooh, i did not look this up but i'm pretty sure i got the pronunciation correct anyway um glastonbury england mm-hmm. um a man named colin parks is obsessed with finding king arthur's uh remains and okay. just i guess it's it's considered Arthur, Arthurian studies. Okay. Um, he gets a call from a woman who wished to meet and speak with him about his Arthurian studies. He thinks to himself, hmm, that's strange because I haven't told a lot of people about this. Maybe uh, like yeah. two or three people about my research. So why is why is this random woman calling me out of nowhere? So, they agree to meet at his place. Uh, 7 p.m., she arrives with a loud knock on her door. He opens the door to see a beautiful, six-foot, pale-skinned, possibly 40-year-old woman in a black suit. Okay, so he was a shuck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he invites she got her. got a booty, though? What happened? 
Sorry, I said, but do she got a booty dough? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I'm probably going to say she do. She do. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, I don't mean to derail you with my debauchery. <laughs> so he invites her in, and they get down to business. She says she and her colleagues have been following his research for years. Poppycock, he says. I haven't published a thing, and no one knows of this. And with a cruel smile, she says, I do know all about you. <clears throat> so, he's told, like, she she even, like, goes back and tells him all of his research that she knows about. And this man is shooketh. Oh, so, no. Is he, is he safe? Is he okay? For now, for now, for now. So he's told that he must stop his research. Um, King Arthur's resting place is also a doorway to a realm with nightmare creatures. So I don't know if you know this, but I'm pretty sure you might. Um, King Arthur's remains have not been found. I didn't realize that. Do we think this is like a... So he has a resting place, like there, uh, there's like, like a, a memorial site. I'm guessing, yeah. Like there's there's a there's a resting place. It's in it's in um, where do they call this place? Glastonbury. Glastonbury, England. Yeah. Okay. So it's in England. It's in UK. Um, and any of our UK listeners can confirm or you know refute this. I'm not sure. Um, but I'm pretty sure his remains have not been found. I did read an article that was from April 1st. So um, it was an April Fool's joke that his remains were found by a plumber. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that that kind of stuff does happen. You know, when it comes to geological digs and things of that nature, they do. I remember at some point in England, they were digging up a car park and they found a whole host of uh, like really important archaeological finds. But I feel like we would have heard if they had actually found King Arthur. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So she says to him, this is, his location is a, I'm sorry, an entry, a portal to nightmare land? Yeah, basically. It's a... And what does he say when she tells him So, well, she says it can't be open, and if he continued to do his research, he'd have another visitor... And he definitely did not want to upset this visitor. So, do you think? What's he do? Do you think he stopped his research after she had told him and warned and gave him this warning? No, but he should have. Yeah, he didn't stop. Um, he's like, I. Well, this is not what he said, but this is what I speculate that he was saying. I've come too far now to stop. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm sorry, God. Okay. No, no, I'm just thinking about this. It's 9 p.m. on a Saturday night. He's driving home. There are no cars on the road, which is particularly strange for this area because this is a, the busiest, a busy area. Um, but there is someone in the road, though, or something. It looks like a man from, um, from where he's at. But as he slows down, he's like, that ain't no man. It was a tall, pale, skinny, uh, bat-like cre- creature. Oh, no. It's the Mothman. 
Not quite. It's like a more of like a Batman, but like a mutant Batman. So it's a it's a okay. bat like creature. So it had wings and everything. Um. So it was one of the nightmare monsters that they said they didn't want to take out of the portal. Yeah, possibly. So Perks uh, saw this thing and he hit the gas. He hit it straight towards it, and but as soon as he got close enough, it vanished. Mm, that's good. Yeah. So it's about it's about a week later, early early morning. Perks is woken up by, you guessed it, the monster he saw in the road. It was. Is it in his it house? In his house. <gasps> it was standing over him as he was in his bed. So it grabbed his. That's... It grabbed his wrist. It, it grabbed his wrist, and it got real close to his face, and. It said in a deep, booming voice, "You were told that I would come." The warning the the woman in black gave him. If he continued his research, it spoke to him telepathically. So it didn't even have to open his mouth. Like this, he gave the same warning to him that the the woman in black gave um to him. Oh, thanks. I hate it. <laughs> So, once again, he gave him a warning about, you know... What happens next? Once again, he gives him a warning, or it gives him a warning about King Arthur's resting place, and then it, it's gone. So, he stops his research for now. So, Perks speculated that the woman in black and the creature were the same person, claiming that she was a shapeshifter oh. who was upset after... Perks wasn't heeding her warning, so she she stooped to true, true. drastic measures and shapeshifted into this bat creature. That's kind of cool, actually. Yeah, I know, right? Um, so like I said, he stopped looking um for you know King Arthur's resting place for a while <clears throat> until he couldn't resist anymore. He was like, "I need, I need my drug. I need this. I need to go looking for King Arthur again." <clears throat> and he was he was looking until the day he died. He died of a heart attack. Or so we think. <laughs> or so we think. So there are there's another story about women in black, but I did not write that down. It's the same, it's almost the same because it's about a woman in black and a fine a flying creature. Mm. So if it's the same woman, who knows? I just love the idea of being a shapeshifter. I know, right? It's, it's really cool. Not meeting one like her, but it's cool <laughs> to think about being one. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So now those are my stories. Um, now there are theories about what these enigmatic people are. They could be G-men, you know, guys working with the government to keep things underground. Which is what they've always kind of played it off as, just some hired goons. Right. But or, why the weird paranormal connection, though? Or they could be demons. Oh, no. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so I only wrote down one of the theories. But, okay, so some of the theories are G-men, mm -hmm. demons. They could be hallucinations. Um... They could be like 
just civilian people dressed up like this, or they could be hoaxes. Now, okay, see, no one thinks they could be aliens. N- none of these theories ended up as aliens. I don't know why I think that, like, they are also, like, some of them might be aliens. You would think so, right? Working for us. Just to keep things quiet. Right. Okay, so. What do you think? There's one theory that, well, I'll, I'll get to what I think later. Um, There is one theory that I absolutely love, and this is actually a topic I was going to cover eventually sometime. Um, the theory is that they're tulpas. Continue. Okay. <laughs> so, you ever wonder why the men in black are so, I don't know, like, weird? Like, they have, like, they were manifested for just a single purpose, and that's to stop people from worrying about UFOs. Okay. And that, like, they don't have common sense. Like, that, like, the story I said about the one who was interested in a pen, like, he didn't know what the heck a pen was. Like, he mm-hmm. acted like he didn't know what a pen was. Right. Like, they don't have basic knowledge, like, common sense knowledge. They just have the knowledge of what they should be. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, they're called topas. So, what the heck are topas, right? Mm-hmm. So, originating in Tibet, uh, the language is, um, so, I guess a Tibetan, I, I don't know what you would call them, I guess a monk. Monks, yeah. Okay. Um, so, topas are an entity or being that attains some form of meaningful reality after being conjured up solely from the imagination of the conjurer. So, basically, if you have enough mental power, you can create something from your thoughts to, into reality. Mm-hmm. Um... So imagine the, MI, the men in black or tulpas. Now, there's a case I read in the book. Um, it's about, I don't know the, the woman's name, um, but she created a tulpa. It was of a monk. It was a fat monk. Think of uh, Friar Tuck from Robber Hood. Okay. So she this, this is how it, it was uh, described in the book as well. <laughs> so she creates this monk tulpa and... He can, he's, he's basically like, I want to say he's something that she can see and he can, I guess, interact with the world around him as well because there, I guess she reported that, you know, he, she could feel that he touched her shoulder at one point and stuff like that. And the horses would recognize him as well. Um, and Later on, she notices that he's changing in appearance. He's getting a little skinnier. Um, his attitude is changing from that of, like, you know, a quiet monk to someone who's sassy. Or stuff like that. So she tries to get rid of him. 
because she she knows that you know he's changing and it's and he's like trying to break so basically he's trying to break free from the hold she has on him yeah so he's trying to break free from like her mental space um and he he like he tries he tries but like because he he knows that she's trying to get rid of him now so she eventually does this and she can conjure him away back into her mind and that's the end of that and you know i've actually read like a creepypasta about something like this topas too and the the ending did not end well for the other person um so, so. imagine that the men in black were topas that broke free from the conjurer's grip and he took on a life of their own but why would they work for the government so who says they're working for the government who says they can't just be regular like just topas out with a mission to stop people from learning about ufos they're Hmm. just they're just their own their own society i guess of topas and like Albert Bender, the first guy from the story, he could have planted the thought in in people's heads that there are men in in black suits out there who will stop you or try to stop you from learning about UFOs and flying saucers and paranormal activity and stuff like that. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. So just thinking about like all those minds thinking about this single thing all of that mental power that could create the men in black tulpa i see what you're saying yeah all right so <laughs> that's why this one is like very interesting there's also another um there's also another theory that they are vampires as well oh gosh <laughs> But they've been seen during the day, so I'm yeah. not sure. Every video I've seen, they walked into a building during the daytime. Yeah. But yeah, them being Topas is just my, like, it's just the best because Topas are just, you know, they're, they're fascinating to me. Um, and that would be interesting to look into more in depth. Right, right. And that's uh, all I have for the Men in Black this week. Well, definitely really interesting. Right. I kind of got really, really into it at the end there. No, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, because we're talking about topas. And I'm like, hmm, something I can create from my mind that could manifest if I, like, focus enough. But, yeah, those I, are. I don't think that's something people should be trying to do. I it mean. sounds like a bad idea. At one point, I think uh, it was. It was brought up that maybe, I'm not going <laughs> to, a certain tall, skinny, uh, faceless man in a suit was a topa as well. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's the connection you were making, Slender Man. Oh. Hey, you never, hey, I mean, the men in black... Haven't been known to kidnap children in the forest, but hey, you, you never know. Oh dear. Well, we had a long journey tonight, didn't we, everyone? Yeah, we had um through the awful mind of the Ken and Barbie killers. 
and their reality into the, I don't know if it's reality or not of the men in black situation. Well, in, in, in reality, they are considered a a conspiracy theory as well. So who knows? It's just so many unanswered questions when it comes to that sort of thing. Right? Exactly. As for us, hopefully next week we will not be snowed in, so we'll be back together to record our second, our Valentine's Day podcast. Yes. I have a good one ready for you all next week. I don't yet. I will will have it ready. (laughs) One that I think that's a little bit more on the funny side than the uh, devastatingly sad side like this week. Yay. Absolutely. But on our way out, I would love to say thank you to our sponsors. Which are the Magic Clasp, uh, who are making our serial killer earrings that will be coming out soon this February. And also to Anchor.fm for hosting this podcast and getting us up and running with ease. And we also want to say, if you would love to send a message to us, you can just go to anchor.fm slash when killers get caught and you can leave a voicemail. And if we get one that we like and it's interesting, we will play it during our podcast for you. Yes, I can't wait. Like every week, if you would like some extra content about some kind of killers, I have committed to discussing a serial killer from every state in the United States. So that's another 50 videos on TikTok. Oh my goodness. Which is called Caught Podcast. I've only posted two so far. Probably by the time this comes up, there'll be at least 10 to 12 of them. So that's something you can look into. Nice, nice. But just uh, signing off to everybody in serial killer country. We hope you have a great week coming up. And we can't wait to tell you more about where I can't wait to tell you more about some of our killer couples. And I can't wait to tell you about more creepy things. <laughs> Good night. Good night.